Let's read. We're in 2 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 6, although we will get all the way down to verse 11 before we stop today. But 1 through 6 are the bulk of the passage and where we'll spend the majority of our thought time today. So 2 Corinthians 10, 1 says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Amen? You get a sense of these next few chapters and what the tone is going to be like. We've just entered the battlefield. How long has it been since you had a good fight? Moms and dads, I'm not talking necessarily fist fight, although that sometimes happens. When's the last time you had a good fight? This morning on the way to church, the kids were misbehaving. You locked the keys in the car. The trash compactor got jammed and someone started blaming someone else. On the way to church, you were screaming at each other in the car. The kids are in tears and somehow you put it together. By the time you get in, when you come in the front door, people say, how are you doing? Well, we're fine. We're good. We're fine. We're fine. (laughs) I remember hearing a friend of mine, another pastor, talk about a family coming into church, arguing, screaming at each other in the parking lot on the way to church. And this person who overheard it came in and said, there's a couple out there screaming at each other in the parking lot. And the pastor looked outside and said, oh, that's wonderful. He said, wonderful. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, they used to beat up each other. Now they're just screaming. They're really making improvements. When's the last time you had a good fight, a good argument? Now, don't tell me we're Christians. We don't argue baloney. We have sanctified discussions. The question is, when you fought with each other, did you fight well? Did you fight well? Part of the art of being a Christian is learning the art of war. There's a book called The Art of War. It's a worldly book. But we have a book that gives us the art of war, and that's called the Bible. It tells us there's a spiritual battle going on and a spiritual battlefield of people's minds and hearts. So the question is, how'd you do at your last fight? Was it cutthroat? Did you drop the nuclear bomb on your spouse or your kids? Or did you fight well? Or do you even know the difference? Do you even know there's a difference as a Christian between fighting well and fighting poorly? Because we're going to fight. I mean, we're going to have arguments. We're going to have disagreements. Are you with me, church? Is this not true? Or you're living under some rock somewhere by yourself. But then you're going to argue with yourself anyway. So these next chapters in 2 Corinthians are, to say the least, very intense And some wonder, commentators, uh, Bible scholars who study these things, wonder how they even belong here at the end of this letter. I mean, 2 Corinthians, we've read some sections about how overjoyed Paul was. The Corinthians heard his correction and they accepted it. And Titus goes and 
Titus is happy to see him and they're happy to see Titus and everybody's rejoicing and we're all living happily ever after. And now Paul takes up the collection for the Jerusalem church. So everything seems to be going along famously up until the end of chapter nine. And then we come to chapter 10 and the tone changes so much that people go, I don't even know if this letter belongs here. Some say, well, maybe chapters 10 to 13 were a different letter altogether that somehow through church history just got tacked on to the end of 2 Corinthians. Others say maybe this was the harsh letter that Paul refers to earlier in Corinthians because it's so different. But many say, well, it's actually where it's supposed to be. And one of the things that you have to remember is that as Paul writes, he's moving city to city And he writes part of the letter and then he does some ministry and he moves here and he goes there and then he writes more of the letter. So the letters aren't always written in one sitting. So it could be that between when Paul finished up chapter nine and when he started chapter 10, that he'd gotten some more news about things happening in Corinth. So we get a change in tone because there was new information that came to Paul. And so he writes this next section based on some of the things that he found. As I said, the chapters are intense. They're full of passion confrontation, defense, Paul's exasperated, and he even uses some cutting sarcasm. And we'll have to read between the lines to understand who he's talking to, who he's arguing with, and what is the argument all about. Some of our favorite quoted passages come from this section in 2 Corinthians, Paul's thorn in the flesh, as he prays for God to take it away, and and he learns that God's grace is sufficient, that when he's weak, he's actually strong. That's in 2 Corinthians, this last section, and Paul's vision of heaven. He talks about actually having experienced the heavenly realm, and it's indescribable, and so that comes from this section. But really, these next few chapters are an expose. They're meant to expose to the Corinthians the reality of false teachers, damaging doctrines that have crept into the church and are being accepted and welcomed in by the Corinthians. Paul's challenging them that their body should have a better immune system. Every church is going to have to deal with arguments and with discussions and with debates and with false teaching. The challenge of the body, even of our own body, a virus comes in, a cold comes in, and our bodies fight those things and get rid of them. It's deadly when a body embraces something foreign as part of itself and then allows that thing, we call it cancer, to destroy the very body it has taken over because the body does not respond appropriately against the intruder. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you guys have intruders among you. They're bringing deception and lies. They're actually satanic. And instead of operating as you should and getting rid of those things, you've embraced them. And they're threatening to kill the Corinthian church, so to speak. So we'll read about people Paul refers to them as some and they. So he's talking to the Corinthians in general about dealing with this problem, but then he's speaking specifically about certain people there. Who are these some and who are they? And I'm just giving you a profile ahead of time so that as you read, I figure I'll give you some info now so that maybe as you read these chapters, and I would suggest you go home and read 10, 11, 12, 13 in one sitting. It's not that long. It's not that hard. And read them in one city and get a, a sense of the whole picture. With this information, I think you'll have a better time understanding what this is all about. So who are these people? Who are the some, the they? They're Jews who have come in after Paul has left Corinth. They've come in later, and now they're trying to steal 
the hearts and the minds of the Corinthian people. They're outsiders, possibly coming from Jerusalem, possibly coming from somewhere else, probably validating their ministry by a supposed relation to even the 12 disciples of Jesus. They're self-congratulatory windbags who have no end of praise for themselves. I just remember seeing a bumper sticker. Now, I'm sharing this as a funny bumper sticker. It's not a political commentary, and it goes back years, so I think I'm safe. I remember seeing a bumper sticker that had a picture of Bill and Hillary Clinton on it, and it said, dual airbags. And I just thought that was funny. Again, that's not a political commentary. It just made me chuckle to myself. So this is the folks in Corinth, these false teachers are airbags in a sense. They're running down Paul in his absence. Here's the things you'll read as we go through. They're calling him inferior, weak, untrained, foolish, unloving, and that what he has to say is of no value. They're saying he has no authority in the Corinthian church and that he is all talk and no action. Evidently, now, if you know your Greek history, which you probably don't, but that's why I'm here to help you out. There were Jews, but they were what's called Hellenized Jews, meaning not that they're going to hell, but Hellenized means Greekified. Greekified, that's my word, Greekified. They've been influenced by Greek culture, but a particular kind of Greek culture, there's a group of people called sophists, the people who are wise guys, wise people. They had a love of wisdom. Paul makes reference to these guys in a number of his letters. And sophists were self-proclaimed wise men. They were skilled in the art of argumentation and debate. They had very specific training and techniques. For them, it didn't matter what was true or not true. All that mattered was winning the argument. And they were trained and sought after by the politicians, not trained by the politicians, they were trained and then sought after by politicians of the day to learn how to public speak and make their point. If you've ever watched a political debate, you understand how you can use a lot of words and say nothing, stir up emotions and form some type of argument and avoid the question altogether. Well, the sophist expertise was in the realm of words and rhetoric. And when Paul faces them on their turf, he is doomed to fail. Paul's not a sophist. He's not skilled in his words. Although he's a brilliant mind, he doesn't know their methodology of debate and discussion and argumentation. Not only did they bring this kind of rhetoric to the church, but they also charged exorbitant fees for their services. And the wealthy would hire them for entertainment or, or learning. And again, the thing to notice is that their skill was based not on truth, but on arguing a point successfully, whatever that point might be. So one man, a guy named Protagoras, was an ancient Greek sophist. He said this, man is the measure of all things. Now you'll need that in the second part of chapter 10. But just remember, Protagoras, his main saying, the thing he was known for, is man is the measure of all things. That means that truth is relative. So our own, even in our day, we experience relativism. Hey, whatever works for you, if you think it's true, it's true. That's relativistic thinking. Truth is relative. It's not objective. It's subjective. It depends on what you think it is. That comes right from sophistry, from this guy, Protagoras. And he was really one of the first agnostics. Well, we can't really know God. And so you'll hear shades of these things as we go through this section. And I'll just read you one. This is from a PBS website 
Arguing that man is the measure of all things, the sophists were skeptical about the existence of the gods and taught a variety of subjects, including math, grammar, physics, political philosophy, ancient history, music, and astronomy. However, they were best known for teaching rhetoric, the skill of arguing with conviction. So that's who Paul is up against. And they have got him pegged in a corner. No matter what he says, they come back with a counter argument. Paul comes humbly to the church in Corinth. They say he's weak. So he begins to boast and they say he's a loud mouth. It doesn't matter what he does or what he says, they have a counter argument and he is frustrated and exasperated by this whole thing. And you'll hear this language with that introduction, verse one. Now he says, I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. So he starts off and it sort of puts emphasis on the personal nature. Paul says, now I, Paul, I myself, this is me. He's humanizing the whole thing. He's, I'm a person talking to people. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We come to church, we hear a sermon and I like to keep things personal. When I do weddings or when I'm involved with funerals, I don't like to just read from a book. I like to read from the book, the Bible, but it's not just a ritual that we go through. I like it to be personal. And I myself, I'm not just a talking head. I'm a real person with real feelings and a real life and real emotions and real thoughts. And I like to preach that way. So that's what Paul's doing. I myself am pleading with you. And now he seems to be speaking to the Corinthians as a whole. And notice he says, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. See, what he's facing is a group of people for whom the culture was to agree with or to encourage boasting, loudmouth pride. That was what was culturally important to them. And Paul says, but look, that's not what Christ is about. See, the church didn't even know how to tell the difference between a true apostle and a false one. And that's the problem. The louder someone boasted about their accomplishments or validated all that they'd done or all that they were, then they thought, wow, this person must be great. They say that they're great. They must be great. And Paul says, but I'm coming to you, not with that same attitude, but I'm coming to you with the meekness and gentleness of who? So he presents to them a Christ who is not a loudmouth boaster. When you have the truth, and when you live the truth, and when you are solid in who you are, you don't have to boast. You don't need that. I always like the saying, the sun doesn't have to talk about how bright it is. It just has to shine. So he says, I'm coming more Christ-like than they are. Yes, who in presence am lowly among you. Paul's a humble guy. And he comes humbly but being absent and bold toward you. And he'll talk about letters he'd written and the boldness that he has to exert. Even now, I'm absent, but I have to exert a little pressure here. I have to exert a little force into this. But he says, verse two, I'm not comfortable with that. It's not what I want to do, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with a confidence by which I intend to be bold against. Here they are, some. So Paul's not upset with the whole church. He's not coming down on the entire congregation his beef is with some, the ones I mentioned as we got into the chapter. And Paul doesn't want a confrontation. Who likes confrontation? 
Nobody does. Who likes to have to be forceful and intimidating and exercise authority? That's no fun. Doesn't feel good. So Paul is saying that, look, if you guys will deal with this before I come, then when I come, I can come humbly and we don't have to have this butting of heads when I come. So I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with the confidence which I intend to be bold against them. Right now, I'm going to have to set things in order. But I hope it doesn't continue. Those some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So this is the criticism of Paul's behavior. Paul walks according to the flesh, worldly methods. See, here's the problem. They had set up the way that they judge value. They had set up the way that they judge based on their culture. This is what we think is valuable. This is what we think is not. This is what we think is good. This is what we think is not. So based on their own criteria, they were judging Paul as fleshy. Isn't that crazy? That's what fleshy people do. They don't understand spirituality. They look at something spiritual and they don't even recognize it when they see it. So these people, the sum in Corinth, are accusing Paul of walking. Now that means to live or to think or to operate according to fleshy means. Have you noticed that oftentimes when people are accusing you of something, they're guilty of the same thing? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter two. Who are you, oh man? The minute you judge another, you judge yourself because you do the same thing. For some reason, we seem to be a lot more sensitive to our sin in other people's lives. I can't believe that person did that. Well, you recognized it because you do it. You're familiar with it. The log in your eye keeps you from seeing it. That's all. So they're accusing Paul of walking, of operating according to the flesh, according to worldly, man-centered ideas and ways of thinking. And Paul says, verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons or the tools of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Just before I actually jump back up, look at that verse six for just one moment. He says, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He's not saying, okay, Corinthians, when you get your act together, then I'm gonna punish you for all the disobedient things you've done in my absence. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying is, Corinthian church, when you get your act together and you deal with these false teachers and you identify we're not gonna listen to them, then I'll come and I'll take care of the false teachers. You don't have to do that. You just stop listening to them, stop giving them place in the congregation and I'll deal with them when your obedience, in other words, to recognize them was what they are, is fulfilled. What a passage, huh? We're introduced to this idea of war. So first Paul says, yeah, you know, we walk in the flesh. And Paul uses that to mean we have a human body. We walk around in a fleshy body. We live human lives. But we recognize the seriousness of this passage. And the interesting thing about why Paul says that is from church history, we know Paul was not a very ominous looking figure, quite the opposite. Church history tells us that he was kind of short and stooped over with a big unibrow and a hooked nose and bad eyes. So it's possible that his eyes were kind of weepy from 
an eye disease that he had. And some say that's the thorn in his flesh. But he did not have a very imposing physical presence. So that was a critique of his. That's what those that look at appearances would say, well, look at Paul. I mean, look at the guy. He doesn't look very scary. He doesn't look very smart. But we've learned, haven't we, church? You can't judge by appearances. But people still do. So he says, yeah, I walk in the flesh and my appearance may not be so strong, but don't be confused, he says, but we do not war according to the flesh. When we get into battle, and that's exactly what's happening in Corinth, there is a battle going on. I may look weak physically, but not spiritually because I use different weapons than the world uses. See, they wanted him to use the same weapons that they used. They wanted to get into the debate and the argumentation. And Paul would lose there. He would just get chewed up and spit out by them there. So Paul says, I'm going to be on the same battlefield, but I got different kind of weapons. I'm not going to meet you where you are. And you know, as a Christian, that's how it works for us. We get into an argument with someone at work. They got worldly pea shooters. We got weapons from God. And I know some of you want to drop a spiritual nuclear bomb. Get them, God. Get them. Vengeance is yours, God. Now's the time. In Jesus' name, get them. We do not war according to the flesh, man's wisdom, man's approaches. For the weapons are the tools of our warfare as opposed to theirs. You know, you see the subtle innuendo that Paul is saying. Paul's saying, my weapons are spiritual. Their weapons are fleshy. Their weapons are worldly. For the weapons are the tools of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. Stop right there. You say, well, what are these weapons? Because Paul, you read Ed, you go, what's the list? I want the list. He doesn't give us a list. And I'm like, man, I, I want a list, Paul. Give me the list. So let's talk about this. What are the tools of the carnal world? What are the tools of the world? I tell you what I've seen in the news a lot is shaming. We see the world has gotten really good. You don't agree with me? Shame, shame, shame. I'll shame you on public media. I'll shame you in the news. I'll shame you here. I'll, I'll shame. Shaming has become a huge weapon of the world. Physical attack, threats, fear, just rhetoric, just talking circles. I have a book in my office that I've mentioned a few times. It's called After the Ball. I think it was written in the 90s, uh, maybe the 80s. I can't remember. But it was a treatise on how to get America to accept homosexuality as a viable lifestyle. This was written way before our day. And there was a very specific plan, a war of thought, and an attack based on using the media, using these different things to change the American thought process toward homosexuality. And guess what? It worked. It worked. And I can show you the book written years ago and who wrote it and, and all the things they lay out. Look, if people are going to accept us as a viable lifestyle, we got to change the way we approach things. We got to war differently. They say that. So rhetoric, saying things, talking circles, name dropping, mudslinging, divisiveness, personal ambition, finger-pointing, blame. All those things sound familiar, don't they? Sounds like yesterday's news. But now remember, for Paul and the sophists, these Jewish sophists, it's skilled speeches, bragging about accomplishments. It's entertainment. Talking about sophistry and rhetoric, there was a guy named Gorgias, an old ancient Greek sophist, who argued rhetorically that nothing at all exists. So he set up a logical argument to prove that you can prove through logic that nothing at all exists. And he did that as a sarcastic approach to show that 
there's more to this world than just using logical argumentation. Because what he said is that you can use logic and the rules of rhetoric to make absurd conclusions. And that's what Paul is saying. These sophists, they use all their rhetoric, but they're making absurd conclusions and you guys are believing them. You know, with social media, with the World Wide Web, there's all kinds of junk. There's so much junk. And we see people get taken in by it, by sophists, by televangelists, and they get hornswoggled by these smooth talkers that wear suits and tell you that if you send me your faith seed money, I'll send you a handkerchief blessed by so-and-so, or I'm going to send you a magic wallet and money will come. Well, use it yourself, right? People fall for this stuff. But Paul says, this is spiritual battle. He says later on, there are false apostles. They are workers of Satan. That's what he says. They want Paul to use the same weapons. Paul says, no way. I got superior firepower and I'm not going there. I'm not going to meet you where you are. And the battleground, I mean, what's at stake here? Why does Paul bother to even enter in? I mean, wouldn't you say, Paul, just walk away. And Paul would. If it was just between them and Paul, I think Paul would have walked away. But what Paul knows is the heart's and the minds and the lives of the Corinthian believers are at stake. And he says, I'm going to fight for people. And I feel that same way. I can't tell you how many times I hear, man, we've come here because we have searched for a place we could learn the Bible and we can't find it. Now they're out there. There's other churches that teach the Bible, but they're getting harder to find. And there's more adopting of worldly techniques. And if we just have good music and the pastor studies the Bible to figure out how to spin it, to say what they want to say and to produce some kind of result that they're looking for. And there's a lot of twisting of the word. Satan knows the word of God, right? What's at stake? He said, just like Eve, your mind is being corrupted by these guys. So what are the spiritual weapons? Man, you could probably make your own list. You could probably go through the Bible. I wish Paul had given it, but he hasn't. So let's just talk about, it's the opposite of the false teachers. Paul even said when he came to Corinth, he said, I didn't come to you using fancy words of man's wisdom. I'm not a rhetorist. I don't even know if that's a word. I'm not into rhetoric. What did he bring? What did he bring to Corinth? Jesus Christ and him crucified. He brought a person, the God man who hung on a cross for the sins of the people, who's when believed, transforms lives. Ephesians 6 gives us a list of the armor. The only offensive one is the word of God. That's what we take on offense. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All scripture, God-inspired and profitable. And that's why we go through, and we were in First Kings on Wednesday night, the details of the temple and how the temple is built. I'm going, Lord, are you sure this is inspired? I mean, this is boring. <laughs> Just being honest, you know, it was this high and this many cubits and that many cubits. I'm going, okay, God, but I trust you. And I believe that when you say all scripture is God inspired, I believe that first Kings chapter nine and chapter eight are God inspired. So we're going to go through them because we trust you. I don't have the place in my life to say, well, here's what I think you guys need. Who am I? God gave me his whole word. He said, all scripture is God inspired. He said, Steve, preach the word. And that's why you come. Sword of the Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples when confronted with a demon-possessed man, oh, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have a cross. We have a sword. We have prayer. We have fasting. We have love your enemy. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Pray for them. 
We have, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. We have, don't return evil for evil, but return good for evil. We have those things. Oh, but pastor, that's too hard. Gossip is much more fun. Vengeance is a lot easier. You want to fight like the world. You want to live by the sword, you die by the sword. You want to fight that way. Paul says, here's the difference. Your weapons are centered in man's accomplishments, man's abilities, and they're weak. Paul says, my weapons are mighty because they're in God. And what do they do? They are for pulling down or demolishing strongholds. That's what they accomplish. You can sit around and we can talk all day long about how to fix this and how to fix that. And we can have moon bounces and we can have bake sales and we can have bingo nights and we can do all that stuff. It's all weak. It's all nothing. If there's no Jesus, if there's no cross, if there's no crucified Christians living crucified lives and loving and forgiving their enemies. A stronghold, I like that, for pulling down strongholds. So when you were in ancient battle, you went into the city and if you got through the outside walls and the people of the city knew that your army was coming in, they would escape to where? To the stronghold, usually a tower with like no windows in it, one little entryway and a series of steps up to the top. And as the army came to the stronghold, they'd be pouring like throwing stones down on top of you, pouring hot tar, shooting arrows. They would defend. It's a small defensible place with high walls, very high. So I think Paul chooses this for a very important reason. These Judaizing sophists had set up a stronghold in Corinth. They'd elevated themselves and were walled in behind all their carefully crafted arguments. And Paul says, let me, Adam, I'm going to tear that thing down, that stronghold, that mental stronghold. This week, Thursday morning, we're in Bible study, and someone says, Steve, did you see the news? I said, what? An 18-year-old kid in the middle of a courtroom in Texas asked the judge if he can hug the woman who killed his brother. After sharing the gospel, with her. And she allows him. He gets up in the middle of the courtroom. They embrace and tears. I teared up as I watched it. She breaks out in tears. The judge gets down off the stand, goes back into her quarters, brings her Bible out. So she pronounced it 10 years. The woman got 10 years for what she did. And then after the judge pronounces the sentence, she comes down and brings her Bible, gives her a hug justice and mercy. And I'm thinking, we can talk all day long about racism. And we can talk all day long. And the news story I read, NBC News, it was Botham John's brother told Amber Geiger, I forgive you. It became a polarizing moment. And then one pastor, this is the subheading, said, I'm more concerned about how these acts of forgiveness have been weaponized. Notice the word, weaponized. You're right, they have been weaponized. It's God's weapon weaponized to thwart our work for justice in this nation. One Dallas pastor said, the pastor says, what really matters to us is justice. And hey, I'm not short-selling justice. There is justice and there should be justice. But one-to-one, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, person-to-person, black-to-white, white-to-black, there can be forgiveness and there can be mercy and there must be. And at that moment, strongholds came down and people got upset. I came bringing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to bring a weapon into that conversation? Bring Jesus Christ and him crucified. From the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
for casting down arguments, literally imaginations, thoughts, reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So Paul can't be simply talking about out-debating them. He said, I'm not going to use their weapons. It's not just about, well, I'm going to learn more about creation. I'm going to learn more about pro-life. I'm going to learn more. That's all fine, but that's not how you win. And you get on their level and they're not going to be moved and you're not going to be moved. And so we just get angry with each other and we go home. But the minute you say, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to love you even though you've been mean. The world is full of rhetoric. Casting down imaginations, these thoughts. That's where the battle is, isn't it, church? It's in your mind. That's what they were trying to get a hold of, the mind of the Corinthians. The battlefield isn't here. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the air. Spirits of darkness. You can't fight that with moon bounces and carnivals. And I'm not downing those. Do that if you want. But don't neglect the other. Don't spend five minutes in the word of God and 25 minutes talking about your fishing trip. How about your house? How about your home? How's the fighting going in your house? When the battle comes, do you go back to the old ways you used to fight before you were saved? Do you get down and dirty when you fight? Throwing around names, mudslinging, blaming, cursing, shaming? Or have you learned to fight Jesus's way? Have you learned to forgive? Have you learned to encourage Have you learned to be compassionate? Have you learned what James said? Let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Those are the weapons that really accomplish stuff. They invite in the power of God to your argument. How do you argue with a changed life? Your testimony, another powerful spiritual weapon. How do you argue with that? Well, I don't believe God exists. Well, tell me about it. Here's what I used to be. Here's what I am. You figure it out. I'm just going to go live in the light while you sort it out for yourself. I'm going to enjoy my life with God. Talk all day, hear your head rattle. But in your house, don't revert back to the old ways. You become a Christian. You get a new armory, a new way to do battle. There are so many arguments. The Bible is just full of myth. The Bible is uh, full of contradiction. It's just written by man, so on and so forth. And you may struggle with doubts the stronghold in your mind of doubt. Can God really love me? Can God really forgive me? And you've got those belief systems set up in your heart. And today, you're hearing that the greatest battle is the one for your mind and your heart. And Satan wants it, and God Mm -hmm. wants it. And I'm going to encourage you today. Maybe today will be the day of salvation. Maybe you'll hear about a cross, And that I was a sinner, desperately in need, not of an argument, not of logic. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the cross is not logical. That God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, would take on human flesh and humble himself, even to the point of death on a cross, because he loved the world, because he loved you. What God would do that? What man would make up such a story? It's not logical, but it's true. The message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. 